Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya, and unfortunately a little bit sick. But regardless, today we are discussing chapters 36 through 38 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. After 36, The Broken Arrow, Serafina finds Pantalaemon and Will's demon in the Mulefa world. She catches up with them and names Will's demon Kerjava. Ker- is that how it's pronounced, Kate? I don't know, you listen. Kerjava. Kerjava, yeah, you listen to the audiobook, I don't. Um, she leaves them to find Mary and tells her about how Azriel and Mrs. Coulter died. In Chapter 37, The Dunes, Will and Lyra are reunited with their demons. The demons tell them about what they have learned when they were separated. They discovered that the windows made by the knife are sapping dust from the universe. They must be closed. Every window that was made created new spectres. Will and Lyra realise that they cannot be together because they will die outside of their own respective worlds, and they cannot use the knife to travel back and forth. Lyra tries to use the alethiometer and discovers that she has lost her ability to understand it. The leader of the rebel angels, Zephania, comes to the children. She tells Lyra that Lyra can relearn her ability, and that her and Will can still communicate across worlds if they learn how, through imagination. Will teaches the angel how to close windows. She promises to close every single window. In chapter 38, the Botanic Garden, the Egyptians meet the Mulefa and are shown the way out of the land of the dead. After eating, resting, trading, and refilling their supplies, the boat convoy makes way on its long journey to Chitagatsi. After saying goodbye to the Egyptians, Will leads Lyra, Serafina, and Mary through a carefully cut window so Lyra can show him something in his Oxford. On their way, Mary is taught by Serafina how to see her demon and finally gets to see it with her own two eyes. Lyra requests that they go to the Botanic Gardens in Oxford, and Mary leads them there from the north of the city. Lyra shows Will her favorite tree in the garden, which is there in both worlds, and they agree that no matter what, they will come there every year at midday on midsummer to be with each other. They share a tender goodbye, and with a heavy heart, Will closes the window and breaks the knife, using his fresh memory of saying goodbye to Lyra to do so. He and Mary discuss their future as friends and go to get some tea. In Lyra's world, she has dinner with the master of Jordan College and head of St. Sophia's, one of the women's colleges. Lyra gains a new respect for Dame Hannah, and between them, they start on the journey of working out what Lyra will do now. 
Lyra agrees to study the alethiometer under Dame Hannah. Then that night, she slips out with Pan and heads to the botanic garden in her own Oxford. There, the book closes out with a conversation between Lyra and Pan. Fiend. I didn't realize because of the audiobook that it was St. Sophia, which is like really interesting to me because uh, Sophia is like the name of wisdom. Right. Yeah. Like sophistry. Oh. Yeah. Like philosophy okay. is the same, has the same root in it. And But like you said, Caitlin, they said it weird. So I was like, well, whatever that made up bullshit is. <laughs> but like if I had seen it, I would be like, oh, she's going to learn at the College of <laughs> Female Wisdom. Wait, did you never? Did you not read the book? No, no, I listened to it. Really, I'm a Philistine? How do yeah. I not? How did I not know that? Yeah. Oh yeah, I listen to it when I'm at work. That's the main way that I listen to to books. Oh. Because my work requires no brain power; it's all body power. So my brain does something else. So general feelings. Yes, yes, very good. Yep, that's exactly what you wrote. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, what I wrote has more fucks in it, but yeah. <laughs> so many fucks to give. Um, mine, I just wrote that, like, it's been over 20 years since I first read these books, and I, I still cried. So he must have done something right in these last chapters. And we, you know, it's not like we've had a smooth reading of it. So I, it literally was basically reading these last chapters independently of the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. It was still, I was listening while I was making breakfast this morning and, like, crying into my eggs. Aww. <laughs> you read uh, although, these books when you were five? I had no idea. I am 36. <laughs> <laughs> so I read them when I was 14, my friend. Wow. I don't know if I just, like, I wasn't reading these books the right way when I read them previously or, like, I wasn't as invested, but I feel like the ending really got to me. Like, I was way more invested in Will and Lyra's relationship than I expected to be. That got me this time, and very different from the last times that I've read it. Um, Mary saying goodbye to Atal, really. Yeah. That was sad. Yeah, I I think the ending is amazing, mainly from, like, a kind of meta perspective. Like, I, I compare it to other fantasy books, and I feel like they would have ended, and we've kind of said this throughout the whole book, that they would have ended, you know, with like the death of the authority or like the death of Metatron or like Will and Lyra confessing their love and that would be it. But this story like forces the characters to live with the grief and joy of their adulthood and like all the complexity of life and truth and stuff. And so like I just really appreciate that. It's It's interesting because I was so literally like on my way back to my apartment before recording this, I started listening to our first episode on the f- opening five chapters and um, that we recorded o- over a year ago. Yeah, <laughs> don't date it. Don't date it. We, we had these done months in advance. It's just been the editing that held us up, right? Right. <laughs> no, but like listening to the way that I think we kind of complained about the opening of the book, or at least Kate did, about oh yeah, how I hate I hate the first couple of chapters. <laughs> if like the opening feels a little bit slow, a little bit prologue-y, a little bit like it just takes a while to get to the action, and I feel like the ending is also a little bit kind of extended, kind of like what Alan said compared to what a lot of fantasy books would do. Like it's a long denouement, but right. it totally works because. 
it's like it's wrapping up all of these character storylines and thematic storylines and world building storylines in a way that is complex and nuanced and crunchy and it just like you don't notice that it's a super long denouement i think in the way that you notice that it's a kind of like long extended prologue and you're just like impatient waiting to get to the action yeah like the first time i read this book i read it in one day and i absolutely did not notice that i now dislike those first couple chapters Mm -hmm. because i was just i was just i just flew through it I skipped school that day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I just read the whole thing. I think going back to it in this context of looking at it and analyzing it in a podcast was what made me realize that I was like, eh, these, this, this kind of starts crap in comparison to like some of the really cool moments we had in the second book and come, some of the cool moments we get later in this book. <laughs> I guess maybe it makes sense to, to kind of like look back into a retrospective and that it is our final episode about the book. I don't want to make this whole thing about the beginning. I almost feel like those first few chapters of the book maybe could have been like a novella or something. Yeah, definitely. He's already done a few other ones, so like, why not? Yeah, like, do a whole novella where like, the main character is Ama. And like, it's all about... Oh, no. Her, I don't know. Well, because those chapters really are about her. Alan's whole point. It shouldn't exist. (laughs) Alan's whole point (laughs) about like by making them full realized characters, it kind of takes away from what could be like an Orientalist, like ooh mysticism, like problematic view of that. May I just say the word novella? Or sorry, novella. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, it's. I've heard I've heard both of those. I think I know. No, you haven't. Once You're being nice. <laughs> I think it's, I, I'm pronouncing it with Spanish vowels because it feels like a Spanish word to me, even though it's totally well, not. Because it's telenovela. Yeah, it's. A, okay. it, I'm pronouncing yeah. it like telenovela because yeah. that's and because it's a thing that like I only read it written down. I don't hear people say it, and so I'm. That's fair. Yeah. So I, I apologize. Yeah, I feel like if the, you chopped off those first five chapters, made it like a standalone novella, and then start book three with like them actually rescuing Lyra yeah. from the cave. Because that's right. kind of like... I understand what you're saying there, but as somebody who waited for The Amber Spyglass to be published, if he'd come out with a novella in between, I would have I <laughs> tracked Philip Pullman down and murdered him. <laughs> I feel that would be self-defeating. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Tell me the story before I finish you. George R. R. Martin is like, thank God she doesn't like my books. (laughs) Yep. Truth. Um. Okay, but back to back to this book that we're supposed to be, and back to specifically this section of this book that we're supposed to be talking about. Back to Um, the podcast, really. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I I agree with everyone above. Like, in the end, it's a bit of a bittersweet ending, but it feels fairly honest to what the book was trying to be and what the book was. And I quite like I quite like that it was consistent to the end and didn't kind of cave to the let's make a super happy ending. It's not that it's not a happy ending, it's just kind of a very honest ending. Yeah, I feel like I had the exact opposite reaction to this that I did to the ending of the seventh Harry Potter book. 
Mm. where it's like yeah it's too wrapped up it's too wrapped up it's too happy it's too saccharine sweet like Mm -hmm. there's yeah completely absent of any like feeling of authenticity or nuance look i don't (laughs) want to talk about harry potter okay no one (laughs) wants to talk about harry potter i think there is a larger conversation i was going to bring this up during lee's favorite part so you know what i'll I'll talk about it then Okay. okay 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 Speaking of favorite parts, I love, I love, 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 love more than anything the last exchange between Lyra and Pan. If the show doesn't end with that, I'm gonna be so upset. Um, capital U. Y- yes, I did capitalize that U. But mm-hmm. the bit where she says, you know, you have to build it where you are, and Pan says, what build what, and then it just ends with the Republic of Heaven. Yeah, mm. I really, I really like that. I think it it like ends on such a strong thematic thesis point and yes. and specifically the line that's like not the final line but kind of leading up to it the um it says we shouldn't live as if the kingdom of heaven mattered more than this life in this world because where yeah. we are is always the most important place i think like he just like fucking nailed his like biggest critique of religion or specifically of christianity and catholicism the way yeah. that he sees us if it's like well, if heaven is what matters, then like you can justify being super shitty on earth because you're always like have this eye on something else. And like, no, what matters is the here and now. And it was just such a good way of laying out the theme without like it felt natural that mm-hmm. they would say it there. It didn't feel like he arranged yeah. it. And then in the same sort of scene, but uh, slightly before that, uh, Lyra mentions that she hasn't shown anyone like she's keeping it to herself that pan can go far away from her Mm -hmm. and she says that you know she that was something that she learned from will that there is a benefit in keeping silent about some things and it was just a really nice way of showing how much she had grown and how much that growth was shaped by her time with will yeah because like old lyra totally would have just been like she would have been showing off yeah she would have been bragging to everybody look what my demon can do blah 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 blah." yeah exactly (laughs) yeah it's a completely different feel this chapter like does such a good job of showing not telling like all the ways in which she's really matured and grown as a person compared to the character that we met in uh the golden compass slash the northern lights look at me being inclusive (laughs) what is it in german (laughs) Uh... who knows i definitely found that i really enjoyed the part where lyra is talking to the master and to dame hannah and just for the first time, she actually sits down and goes, oh, yeah, I've been living in the moment a lot. And I need to, I, I I don't really get to do that. And I don't really want to do that anymore in quite the same way. And it really is that first kind of time that she's really cognizant of how much she's grown up. Yeah. And look, looking at it from the perspective of someone who has, you know, gone through childhood and become an adult, that really is one of those core things you realise is I was just doing things day by day then i didn't really think about why or what they were for i trusted that other people said what they were for and was genuine about it but i didn't ever really internalize that and then the first time i internalized that was when i first really felt like an adult Mm -hmm. and i especially love the contrast of basically like in the beginning of the golden compass the scholars are like her enemy and she has no time for scholarship, no time for learning, no time for studying. Like she's in a very antagonistic relationship with all of the scholars at Jordan College. 
And now at the end of the trilogy, she's deciding to become a scholar in a way that feels really authentic to herself. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, Alan, you Definitely. talk a little bit about this in your answer, so maybe you can you can kind of take over from here. But I do, I like the idea that she lost her ability to read the alethiometer and she has that like desire and fire within her to get it back. And the only way to do that is through careful study and scholarship and that she's making the choice to pursue that, which is not something she ever would have done before. And just jumping off uh, something that you said about seeing the scholars in a different light, she's also very much seeing Dame Hannah mm -hmm. in a different light here, which I love because yeah. the last time she saw a bunch of like adult women was when she met Mrs. Coulter. Ooh, and she yeah. only had that eyes was, for Mrs. Yes. Coulter. And she like said some, she had some not nice things to say about the women scholars. Mm -hmm. Because of course she was raised around the male scholars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, and now she's sitting there and she's like, wait, this woman's interesting and she has a lot to say and that I can learn from. And I love that difference in her. Yeah. It's really, really good. Because it's very compact too. You know, like we talk about this being like a, a long ending, but it, it really like sums up the whole Mrs. Coulter coming to Jordan thing in a really nice way that's very contrasty. So contrasty is a word. That's yeah. uh, contrasty totally is definitely a word. hundred percent. Contrastish. I remember the first time reading this, I just have like vague impressions of going away from it. And I remember really disliking the ending of this and especially like her losing her powers. That's how it felt to me. And, uh, and I was like, that makes no sense. I hate it. I think I had that exact same reaction too. Like the yeah. first time I read it, I was like, oh yeah, it, it felt almost, it just felt like mean spirited in a way, like against yeah. her as a character. Um, Very Matilda. Yeah. Yes, it sets up quite a bit of the new ser of the new series. I don't know if it was necessarily intentionally, but quite well. Like it, they go back on this concept of her losing the ability to read the alethiometer and then kind of getting there on the kind of understanding it a bit more, but from a much more mature perspective. I think it was actually a really good decision, but I do remember feeling at this, uh, uh, you know, when I first read it, that same sort of oh. Oh, that's okay. Well, she's she's not super powerful now. Can you imagine if they were just like, yeah, Buffy, you're not a slayer anymore. Sorry. You know, you say that, but that happens a lot in books I read where yeah. the main female character is like extremely powerful in some way or another. And in order to have the ending, she has to sacrifice her power. And it does suck. If there's something that feels like a little bit misogynistic about it. Oh, yeah. Super misogynistic. Yeah. Because... 100%. Yes, one hundred percent. To say that like a powerful woman can't have a happy ending, yeah, no. or that like has to sacrifice her power in some way to like get in order to have a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that that was a bad taste in my mouth as a fantasy fan to see like a magical power kind of disappear. But all that being said, like now having read this book through a few times and really thought about you know, all the themes and stuff, I find this to be my favorite thing maybe um, because I feel like it doubles down on the story being metaphorical and allegorical in a way that like is kind of gutsy of Pullman. Like I respect him doing this it, and it's 
it's a commitment to his themes over like his world building and stuff, I think. Uh, and he's kind of like signaled in the book to us, like the Mulefa have the whole world for uh, the whole word for make like or metaphor. Like when they talk about the serpent and and they're like, the serpent said this. And Mary's like, the serpent talked. And they're like, no, you idiot. <laughs> it, it's just a metaphor um, that he's kind of saying that about all stories. Right. We should understand stories as metaphors and not to take the world even a, like I feel like that's a, a message to us as readers to like read this book this way, like understand that I am saying something to you and not just constructing a world the way that honestly a lot of fantasy writers now do. They they construct a world and they will not break that world to say something. And Pullman really makes a commitment to saying something. So I feel like when you're a kid, there's a feeling that you have that truth is easier to access and understand. Like as a child, it just feels that way. Mm. But adulthood truth feels i mean to be an adult is to be uncertain and yeah. to know that all of your choices have costs and they're a complex well and i feel like the truth that you have as a child is often an illusion right and right. like when things become more complex as an adult it's because you realize oh that truth wasn't actually a truth like life isn't that simple most people aren't competent at their job. Most people aren't genuinely just like good people. <laughs> like adults true, yes. don't know what they're doing. My parents are flawed humans, you know? Yeah. yeah, you had all this certainty as a child and and all of that gets taken away as an adult. And I think the reaction that some people have that is to retreat back into the certainty, you know, and, and you know, speaking of fantasy and stuff and like fantasy fans and feeling disappointed, I've, like, I think you see a lot of that. Like, there'll be like, Star Trek used to not be political, but now it's political. And it's like, you were a child and you were too dumb to see that it was political. And it's it's political now in the same way that it was back then and pissed people off in the 60s. So, like, in the same way, I mean, I what I'm saying is I think Pullman made the transition from childhood to adulthood as it surrounds truth literal for Lyra in a way mm -hmm. where she was certain and knew what truth was. And then as an adult, she no longer has that certainty. And that's really cool as a writer, I think. Yeah. And to me, I think there's also something about taking away what is essentially an unearned power that she yeah. just got because of like fate or teleology, which I feel like we have to say that word at least once in this episode. <laughs> um, and then give her the power to get that back through effort, that is actually, I think, kind of an empowering message rather than a disempowering misogynistic message. And that, um, like, <laughs> in a lot of kids, a lot of kids' books are about, um, or like YA teen books are about people getting unearned power and doing stuff with it. And I feel like it's much more of an adult thing to have to earn your power and fight for it. I do think the fact that she can get it back through her own power is one of the reasons why this one has never really upset me. And honestly, until this conversation, I never really thought about it that way at all. Yes, because it's gone from her instinctually, but it's not like gone from the world. Well, and, and the angel makes that very clear that this yeah. was given to you for a purpose. 
a teleology, one might Given say. to her by who, by what, who <laughs> took it away. Why don't we get these answers, Pullman? Sorry. Well, maybe we do. Um, well, like, at, at we least, definitely though, don't. Like, well, we kind of get, get hints about it. We'll talk yeah, about it a bit later. Theory. No, we I agree. Do. I, <laughs> yeah, I we'll agree. talk about it. Just... Yeah, I know. It, the, the whole thing is really, you can't keep your childish... Like, this was linked to your naivety. Yeah. And in losing that, unfortunately, you've also lost the good bits about it. But you can work to get that wonder back. Which is, again, very much an allegory for how growing up makes us lose some of the wonder in ourselves. And how, actually, you don't have to lose that wonder. You just need to find it again. Mm. I don't know if I've ever brought this up before because it's been, you know, a year that we've been recording this one book. Um, maybe, maybe. So I don't remember a single goddamn thing we brought up before. I know. Um, so my apologies if this is a broken record. But I've always felt strongly that this story is like the anti-Peter Pan. Ooh. And I despise Peter Pan because it's all about how childhood is like the best thing ever. Hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I disagree mm-hmm. with that a lot. A hundred percent. And I really, I think that that's just one of the reasons why I've always loved this story because it really is about how growing up is good, even if it's hard, and that maybe you know you lose hard. things. Yeah, maybe because it is hard. Yeah, but being a grown up and losing or gaining a better understanding of the world is ultimately worth the cost. And nothing is nothing is pointless. You always, even if it feels needless, even if it feels um, like it was just the universe being unfair, you still learn from it and you still grow and you still get something. And that's just part and parcel, like recognising that is part of being an adult human. I think we should talk a little bit about Will and Lyra and how Pullman handles basically like their relationship and them having to be apart. The way that he has them like logically puzzling through their conundrum and like trying to find loopholes and failing, it it feels really authentic. And I feel like as the reader, you're like kind of hoping with him, with the characters, you know, you're like, oh, well, maybe maybe he's just trying to be dramatic and, like, maybe they will find a loophole or, like, a way to be together. And then, and you're, like, you feel that, like, disappointment when they, like, finally accept, no, it's not going to happen. And I feel like it makes the bittersweetness of, like, them having to say goodbye and then, like, coming up with their, like, we'll, you know, sit in the bench in the garden every year and, like, think about each other and, like... If we meet other people, we have to, like, really be invested and not just always, you know, like, we have to move on, but without forgetting. I think it's, like, a very... God, now I'm going to cry. And I, like, didn't even cry when I was, like, actually reading the book. One of my my favorite bits that I kind of specifically didn't put down, because even just thinking about it, I'm getting teared up right now. Um cry let's all just see how many of us we can get to cry in this episode (laughs) i cry super easily at books so especially if it's you know a favorite that i've read a million times like this um but the whole you know they'll find each other again and when 
every atom of me and every yes, atom of you. Yes, that line exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So that gets me. It's like it's it's beautiful and it doesn't feel over dramatic. It does not feel like a telenovela at all. It feels <laughs> <laughs> again. Just bringing some levity into this conversation, okay? Um just just the boys are here laughing at us cry. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, pretty much. Thank you for everyone fulfilling their gender roles. <laughs> uh, feelings. <laughs> to be fair, outside of like books and movies, I don't like to feel feelings. This is books and movies are where I feel all my feelings. Oh, it's so funny too, because like so Francis and I have been to the Oxford Botanical Garden together. And we have, like, been to the bench where there's, like, the plaque and then, like, the... God, I hate you. There's, like, yeah. a statue, a statue of, of like, the demons. I hope you still have those pictures because my phone got stolen and I definitely do not have them. Um, I have some. Okay. I've, See, I've been to it there's, time, so. There's, like, a huge part of me that wants to visit it, but I do suspect I would just burst into tears. I think it was, a lot of people do. It's funny, and too, because... I, I don't want to do that in front of people. Okay. It's like a Home Alone oh, thing. People. So while we I were know, there, God. I'll be honest, nobody was crying. There was just a line of people waiting to make out and take selfies <laughs> at the bench. So it was like a little bit a different vibe, I think, than gotcha. the actual That's terrible. The book. It was. It was kind of... It felt <laughs> a little bit like Disneyland in a weird way. I don't know. Like, Yeah, that's unfortunate. But like, I mean... I'm happy for those people to get their photos, obviously. Yeah. And I feel like it's so funny because we went there like so many months ago. And I feel like we sent you and Alan the pictures, but we didn't like talk that much about the experience of being there because I felt like we were kind of saving it for the podcast recording. And so it does feel a little bit full circle now to be like talking about this experience that we had, what, in April? (laughs) Okay, so now I think... Least favorite part. That's, yeah, that's everything I have yeah. to so, say. So, Adi, I, why don't you give us your least favorite part? Because then no. you could just be silent for like an hour. I'm going to I'm gonna give my least favorite part because mine, okay. mine makes the most sense as the first one, I think. Because um, honestly, personally, I really can't find one. Like, I... I maybe would have liked to see a cutaway to Yorick or maybe to like Miss Coulter and Asriel just floating in the <laughs> void but really like that's fundamentally that would just be a bit of service oh for me oh my god like, that would actually would have been the most amazing epilogue it's just like after this like beautiful <laughs> thematically wrapped up like bittersweet nuanced I'm crying to just have like a super sarcastic um, Mrs. Coulter and Azo just like falling forever. Like, no, oh, well, so... here we are. <laughs> it doesn't need to be long enough. It doesn't. I feel like it doesn't warrant a novella because it only needs to be like two and a half pages long. But just I never like... said it was a good novella. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it could be it's like probably... Study in Emerald, where it's only a page or two, but really, really okay. good. I feel like I'm the only person who actually came up with the least favorite thing. I'm not sure if I loved the way that Pullman had Serafina tell the demons the bad news about like them not being able to be together because they had to close all the windows for the dust and then like keeping it a secret for the later reveal. I feel like, I don't know, it like felt a little manufactured or like artificial in a way. I feel like maybe they could have just told the demons the bad news and then... It would have been, I guess it's like, 
I didn't feel like having it be a mystery added that much. And I feel like the dramatic tension of and like dramatic irony of us knowing it before Lyra and Will know, knew it would have been better. I liked having, you know, them all come to the realization together that there was no possible way for them to be together. But I think they could have just cut that scene with Serafina and had yeah. the demons tell them. I agree. Yeah, so that was my least favorite thing. I was the one part that just like didn't work 100% for me, but it wasn't like bad, really. It was just my least favorite. I will say it feels very Philip Pullman, the way he did it. Like, yeah, it, it just feels like his writing. My least favorite thing is more, I guess it's on brand. Uh, it's like has to do with themes and stuff. So like, I just feel like because there are three books, because they're so long, the theme of staying in your own world is an important thing to do. Like I really appreciate, like you were talking about Anya in those last few lines with pantalimon where they talk about like, you have to build it where you are. That's part of the reason I think that they have to stay in their own worlds. It's, it's about that thematic point, but mm -hmm. it kind of undermines all the good that has happened because people left their home if that makes sense. Like all the growth that happened, all the helping each other. All I the... see. Well, it's kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to sound like such an ecologist here, like context and scale matters. Like if you take that idea to its most extreme version of like literally only this moment in your house is what matters, like that's absurd. Right. right? So it's like, there is a relevant neighborhood scale that you should care about and it's kind of specific and it's definitely not fucking the next life in heaven but <laughs> it's also not like your immediate tiny microcosm there's something powerful about her going back to jordan college going through the exact same structural situation as in the first book but the outcome is very different because she's so different but it also feels like the book is almost saying like, this is where you always belonged. You just weren't ready to be there. Oh, interesting. And, and I don't like that. Like it just, there's something about all of, like everybody ends up back where they were at the beginning of their story. Not Roger. <laughs> Roger is everywhere. Um, <laughs> and it, it just feels like there's some kind of message there that is at, at odds with so many other things. And I think it's just a consequence of how long the story is and the nature of it being an adventure and, and all of that kind of thing. So it, I don't think that this is intentional, but it's just like, you know, being worried about the themes and looking at the themes, this just feels wrong to me. Counterpoint. Hmm. Is there something that's kind of like hero cycle-y about for sure. Ending up where you started, but with a very different perspective because of the journey that you've been on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it goes back to him writing these books as a response to Lewis and Tolkien and, mm -hmm. and all so of that. So do stuff. you just hate the hero cycle in general? Or is no, there something I, about the way it's specifically enacted here that you don't like? Yeah, it's it's what's going on here. The Because Pullman is like a major theme of his is a repudiation of, of Lewis and Tolkien who are like obsessed with these chismatic, you know, these circle stories, these myths that, you know, have repetition built into them because for them, 
the fact that it's circular is like super important because there's like this conservative motion, right? Like the past was good and we return to the past and we return to goodness. And like, we've learned from our adventure and we've brought back wisdom and now we're going to do it right. And there's an element of that in Pullman's ending, but the entire Mm. story is like a repudiation of that kind of thinking. It's like the people, you know, but that's what we've been saying the whole time. The people who have like their eye on the heavenly prize are the fucked up bad people, you know, like those are the people who are trying to return (laughs) to their childhood certainty and to the garden of Eden and to sinlessness. Like they're trying to go on the charismatic journey. And then at the end, Lyra does it. And I'm like, why? Why is that happening? Why is that the way that she, you know, ends her story? It it feels out of step with itself in a in a way that bugs me. I don't I don't want to say like, and this ruins the story. This is why Pullman is a failure. Like I'm not saying that. Like this is just something that when I'm when I analyze it, I'm like, eh, that feels off. I do feel like he talks enough about where Lyra is going from here that it doesn't quite do that for me mm-hmm. it's also you know, not but, the end of the story right yeah he doesn't say this is her ending right you know he, he says this is where she has to live you know like in her world so obviously she would go back to what she knows i also don't really have a least favorite bit um i like the ending it hits me in all the emotional spots you know like i've cried twice already like come on um yeah. interested in podcasts. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, but what you guys were talking about earlier about how you just don't like a sweet endings or you think that they don't feel realistic. I actually hate that as a mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that there is a weirdly popular mindset that in order for a story to be serious and, you know, capital G good, it has to have a sad ending. I don't think that that's true. Oh, well, it is. a lot of people a lot of people do feel that (laughs) i agree with caitlin when i when i say i don't think that that's true i'm not saying that that mindset does not exist i'm saying i personally do not subscribe to that mindset to be clear no i think you're absolutely true that that does exist like i am all about a fucking happy ending to me i feel like there's just a difference between a happy ending that feels authentic to the characters and enough nuance of like it's happy but it's not it's not just like devoid of any conflict or like super saccharine and unrealistic Mm. and everything works out perfectly and there's no problems ever versus like like something that feels authentic to the way that life actually is where it's like it's overall happy, but like, you know, there's going to be complex and some amount of struggle and conflict, but we're going to deal with it. You know, like, I think you can be optimistic without being like super sugary, saccharine, sweet. No problems ever happen in the future. Sure. Uh, I just don't think a super, hey, everybody lived happily ever after ending completely ruins a story. And I think a lot of people do think it does. Now, that being said, in this particular sense, I do think the ending was set up perfectly and made complete sense. Like, he talks a lot about 
um, you know, they don't know where the specters come from and how he has York bring up, you know, the knife has intentions too. Like it, them not being able to be together was set up very well. And it played out, I, I do think, exactly how it should have. But I just really would have liked to see what a happy ending would have been for all these characters. Like how, I think I the idea of... Ending, well, you know what I mean? Like a, a them being together ending. I was thinking more that like if he didn't put in being in a different world makes you die young. I see. So, so they could have they just, just had to choose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it I was just like, really... ooh, okay, okay. Question now based on that. If that was true... Which world do you think they would have chosen and why? Would Lyra have uh, gone with Will? Obviously, or would Will Lyra. Lyra would have gone with Will because of his no. mom. No. <laughs> or would they have charged Mary to take care of his mom and stayed in Lyra's world? I don't. I think Lyra would have gone with Will because of his mom. There are talking bears. She says it as well. She it's says it's so to much Han. cooler. They have talking demons. There's cliff but gas. Lyra has no There's real witches. To people. Lyra Who, has to and she can disappear. Will's world sucks. It's so Lyra bad. Lyra has to walk around <laughs> with a ferret and hide it for the rest of her life. Yeah. Okay, no. See, that's, that is some bullshit. That is some bullshit. Because, because he says at the end um, that nobody will be able to see Mary or Will's demon. Well, okay, He's, so that's like weird. I can understand nobody in the world being able to see Mary's because that was like she had to see it because it hasn't been like ripped away from her the way uh, right. Kiryava was. Yeah. But the fact that he says that nobody can see Kiryava in their world, but but previously everybody could see Pan, that is some bullshit and, writing right there. And I think we just found my least Boreal. favorite thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, I actually, I literally came up with that same thought right now and I was going to ask yep. you about that. That's like, Wait, what, does what he determines say that, whether he a demon... He does, he says. I thought I thought he was saying that they that they couldn't be. I thought it was the implication was that they couldn't be allowed to see his. Um. No, she literally says the sentences. They won't see yours or Will's though, unless you teach them as I've taught you. That makes no sense yeah so like what i feel like the way i feel okay the way i think the i like that we have just stumbled maybe, into our actual could, least favorite part. maybe we, and could, that we all agree we on could it wreck, we, we could wreck on it at least by saying that maybe that's something that the angel is casting like a glamour that that's seraphina talking uh, seraphina is casting like a glamour which we know <laughs> she can do Okay. Point stands. So, okay, but how how would you prefer for the metaphysics to work? Because I feel like in my mind, I think oh, they that, like, don't. They never do. I yeah. feel like as soon as you, as an individual, can see your demon, it automatically becomes visible to other people. But it sounds like what Kate is saying is that your demon should only. Well, no, because like people could see Boreal's demon. Yeah, no, this line didn't just have the make separating sense. power. And they could see Lyra's demon before they had the separating powers. So yeah, like the ability to separate from your demon should have nothing to or do with something. It. Yeah, he wrote it early on. I reckon. I can't believe it's nobody circled that with a red like, pen. No. It's like, not really, really, Phil, really, Phil. Yeah. No, I wonder what the TV show is going to do with it. Because yeah, I feel like, I feel like if you can see your own demon and talk to it, then other people should also be able to see it. Oh, yeah. Francis, do you want to talk about your Comic-Con experience? I definitely can. So, yeah, for context, dear listeners, and to date this slightly, almost exactly, not very long ago, I was at the His Dark Materials panel at 
London MCM. So that is Comic-Con. And they talked about a few things, and I um, excitedly live live WhatsApped back to the group saying, ooh, this thing and this thing and this thing. Uh, we got to see a new trailer, which was excellent. In fact, we got to see a new trailer twice, I think. They are still keeping the Malefa under wraps um, almost until we get to the... Um, I, they said they will release it before we actually see them on screen, but that's as far as we've gotten. That upsets me so much. Give me my Mulefa now. I've been waiting 22 years. The exact phrasing <laughs> that five. they used, the, ex- <laughs> the exact phrasing that they used was um, the Malefa are currently being groomed, which I assume means they're, oh, they're okay. working on their hair special effects. So I'll be really I, interested. Yes. Like, um, Mary Malone hasn't seen... The, the um, whatever her name is who plays Mary Malone hasn't seen a Malefa. She was acting <laughs> puppets. Interesting. Oh, of course. But here's the real question. Hmm? Is Dust God? Oh, look at you transitioning us into our next session. Segway! <laughs> section, not section. <laughs> if, I just, if I just shout segway at the, t- you know, at the top <laughs> of my lungs, is that a good segue? Yeah. <laughs> Air horns. So I wrote down um Zephania's line about what dust is here and since she seems to she shows up at the end and is like the authority of all information we can assume she's correct so yeah i mean my take on this and it is you know it is my take but it's going back actually to some of the stuff we've touched on quite a bit over this podcast is that dust is god in that dust is very much kind of epitomizing the Spinozan ideal of God. God is defined by the parameters of the universe around us, and whilst it may seem not as understandable to us, that doesn't mean it is inherently per se supernatural. This is like, um, like the the interpretation in the book is a little bit more theistic than. Spinoza's God is specifically because this assigns dust a certain consciousness, which uh, Spinoza does not assign to his idea of God. But fundamentally, we can call dust God because we've got no other way to describe it and we've got no other explanation for the things we feel as being God. It's just that the way that organized religion in that universe and in general has conceived of God doesn't really match up with what dust is. It's just that in this mythos, we know that dust exists. So yes, dust is God. But God doesn't make sense. (laughs) So dust dust is God, but God is not what we think of God as being. Dust is God, but God is not real. (laughs) Or God is a metaphor. (laughs) Um, I mean that that seriously, sorry. Um, So Savannah says dust is not a constant... There's not a fixed quantity that has always been the same. Conscious beings make dust. They renew it all the time by thinking and feeling and reflecting, by gaining wisdom and passing it on. Yeah, this is a little confusing, though, because there's we know that like dust uh, had a kind of via trepanning was kind of intervened in human evolution to like change us from more simplistic, maybe a animalistic levels of consciousness to human consciousness. It, so it makes me wonder, and, and we know that like the authority 
kind of was a like manifested from dust in a way that we don't understand, which I'm fine with, but it does make me wonder where the dust came from in the first place. If sapient creatures are the source of it, like how do you get sapients to make dust without dust intervening? I think that it's one of those, uh, it's a positive feedback loop where you have, you, you you have basically evolution that gives you a certain amount of sapience and that sapience creates dust which then not only perpetuates the sapience itself but also leads to further sapience the only th- i've never talked about it in the philosophy section and i'm not really going to hear the the only thing that kind of works with what you just says, said francis about it. is well i was it's <laughs> um it's called panpsychism and it's i've talked uh-huh. about it maybe a little bit once yeah you have yeah um, it's just the idea that consciousness is not like a, a feature that comes out of complexity, but that it is uh, kind of intrinsic to everything, everywhere, all the time. And, and that the complexity brings out a different kind of consciousness, but that everything has like low level. Panpsychism is very uh, complicated, so I'm not going to take the time to explain it, but but and what I'm saying no education is, for you. <laughs> what I'm saying is that uh, what I'm having trouble with is like a chicken and egg problem here, right? Like, did dust create consciousness that then creates? Like, I I understand the feedback loop idea, but in the absence of panpsychism, where there is always like a little bit of consciousness out there to get us started, I don't understand if dust needed to exist in order for intelligence to exist. I think that we are making an equivalence between sapience and sentience here again. And I don't think that's necessarily true because even drawing levels of sentience and sapience, which there are already kind of philosophical problems with doing. Yeah. um, We can say that there's plenty of, there's, there's kind of plenty of sociality, which you see in animals, which aren't necessarily per se sapient and that sort of level of order and organization is more what I think of when I think of what creates dust is empathy and uh, understanding and and kind of sentience rather than necessarily sapience. So I think sentience we have plenty of examples of, but sapience we have very few, and only one demonstrable one. I think that dust does not just create sapience. Dust is linked much more to sentience and to greater understanding of oneself and one as a being even if you don't necessarily think in quite the same way that humans do yeah i mean that's what caitlin just read the thinking and feeling reflecting gaining Mm -hmm. wisdom passing it on yeah i actually like the idea that dust is more literally a godlike being because we know something makes the alethiometer work Uh that some all-knowing thing is answering and something gave lyra the ability to understand that and then something took it away from her and if you think of dust as a being out for its own survival then that's what it needed because it was getting sucked away into the abyss yeah but so just having a um an expression of god being dust is i think is still consistent with the idea that that the god that dust is the universe and the god is the universe yeah. And dust is thus God. But that doesn't mean that dust is completely hands off. 
well, God is completely hands off. It just means that exactly. it's not really such a clear and distinct thing as one personal personal being, and that it's not necessarily interested in being worshipped, and that it's not necessarily internally consistent. I also like the interpretation of it like being the universe and being making up so many things because it does, because we are given to understand that the angels are formed from it, and we are also given mm-hmm. to understand that the angels are these weird kind of architectural beings. Now, again, I don't think there is one answer to this, and I think anybody's interpretation is kind of correct. Like, if it works for you in the story, go with that. Exactly. Um, but I do love that, well, I kind of hate that we never get an answer, but I also kind of like that we never get an answer. Yeah, I've, and I've seen Pullman, like, respond to people who have said, like, I think it's this, or I think it's that, and he's very, I really appreciate this about him, where he's very, like, if that's what you think then that's like important and I'm glad that you took the time to think about it. He's never like, no, 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 you did it wrong. It's, this is what I meant. Like, he's never like that. Do you think he meant something though or did he deliberately mean it as an exercise for the reader? I don't think Philip Pullman is enough of a planner when he comes to story making. Like, I think for him, I genuinely think for him, dust was what it needed to be. That does make me feel better about feeling like I just don't understand what dust is. Because <laughs> Phil Pullman doesn't either. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, I don't think I would have necessarily noticed that I didn't really understand what dust is if you hadn't been constantly, like, bringing it up as a question, which is, yeah. like, totally valid. It's just, you know, different people think about different things when they read books. But um, Oh, yeah, 100%. I also enjoy that different characters get different answers at different times about what dust is and and give different answers. Like, I think I don't remember any exact lines because I didn't prepare that much. But I do think there's one time where Lyra gives somebody like an exact answer of what dust is. How the heck would she know? You know, like, and the angels give Mary an answer in when she's talking to them on the computer in book two. And even that, I'm like, mm, I don't, I don't think that's it, because there's other things that would say no. Most especially the way the alethiometer works and how how it has an agenda. Sometimes yeah. you know, because there are times when it, Lyra comes to understand that she's asking the wrong questions. The one thing about dust that bothers me in the way that it's portrayed in the book is that supposedly it comes from consciousness, right? And in the Mulefa world, there's like these trees that apparently have evolved to require dust. Why aren't, why aren't they ants? Right. right. Like they don't they don't have consciousness and just like, I don't know, based on what I know about the evolution of the tree of life, it feels like on our in our universe, consciousness in the way that generates dust has only been around for a hundred thousand years or something um and again depends on what you define as consciousness right but like these trees have probably been around for millions of years so it just seems like there's a time scale mismatch for the evolution of consciousness the evolution of dust in these different worlds i mean i guess you could argue that maybe mulefa have been around for millions of years on that world so the trees had the opportunity to evolve anyway but there's just like something about it like feels a little off as someone who like knows evolutionary biology in our universe thinking about it in the context of this book but like there are ways to like headcanon around it so it's not it doesn't it's not terrible it's just i don't love it 
for the trees, I guess we don't really know that they're not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. And in fact, that could be an interesting explanation for that, that vision that Mary has when she's up in the trees. You were talking in another episode, uh, Anya, about how does this world have roads in it? Because like the geology yeah. of that is like really weird. And I kept thinking about that. And I was like, well, it's like you said, if dust has been falling into these trees for so long, maybe they are smart and maybe they're like geoengineering with their roots and stuff to like make roads so that they have these animals that help them, you know, move their seeds around and they're like cultivating more life on the planet that's sapient and and all of that kind of stuff. But there's like no evidence at all. Like what Caitlin just said is the most, like the closest we might get to any kind of evidence that the trees are sapient in a way that we would understand, but they're not ants or anything like that. And and I think yeah. it's better that they're not, but. Oh, definitely. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never talked, I've never like even thought about how the dust is attracted to the trees and how that would imply that they're kind of intelligent before. Like literally when you brought it up here, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I really just love that idea now that maybe they are, because we have no idea what a sentience would look like when it can't move and it can't talk. It can't talk. But it's still there somehow. And I love this idea that, I, I don't know why I thought of this, but I have personally now just decided that they are up there just communing with the universe. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and, and with dust. And that, that that vision that Mary got was from from them, from like translated through them. And I love that a lot. And I'm glad that something that we didn't like has just has just given me this nice little headcanon. <laughs> so Science? Yeah, we science. we all agree that dust is God, and it's very clear how all that works. So, science. 100% makes sense. Yeah. Perfect. So, only thing I wanted to talk about very quickly was looking at Mary's demon. So, the, the alpine, alpine chuff, cough? Oh. Chuff. Oh, chuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because H, H is not consistent within the English language at all. <laughs> you could definitely pronounce that co, and that would be also consistent with how English I mean, if he works. listens to the audiobook, he's definitely just trying to annoy you. <laughs> uh, yeah, good point, well made. Uh, <laughs> so, the alpine chuff is a corvid, which are, and corvids are the kind of notorious for being really intelligent and fairly loyal for birds. Like, they remember if you feed them, if you provide them with a bunch of, like, nice shiny things or bits of food or bits for their nests then they will make friends with you and they will defend you like they're pretty pretty chill birds or if they take a disliking to you they really hate you and can't they they can count and they can like yep. use tools so like not they just have some count bit- so corvids can also understand alle- well not allegory but metaphor oh. so if you give them a set of three boxes which have one of which has a bit of meat or something underneath and you consistently so let's imagine you have two green triangles and a red square on one of them and then you put you consistently put the meat under the red square well but then you could change it to be just being two blue triangles and a blue square or two blue uh you know rectangles and a blue circle and you know you can t- can do you do that with them again and again, and then you give them 
two stars and a hexagon and they'll immediately go to the hexagon to find the food i see so they understand it's like the one that's different rather the one than the that's specific the odd one out. schedule exactly mm. so rather than understanding a shape you can transfer that learning onto different shapes that they've never seen and they go for the odd one out so they are really clever things that is like a very whoever designed that experiment i'm like very proud of because it's like it tests a very specific type of generalization in a clever yes, way yeah it's worth reading the paper i did read it before i'll see if i can find it if we can find it i'll put it in the show notes um well alan will um but yeah <laughs> <laughs> mary having an alpine chaff as a demon makes so much sense because Mary is, again, fiercely intelligent, she's curious, she's loyal, she's understanding. And, and as we've established throughout it, throughout these books, the demon has this distinct tendency to reflect the nature of the person, because the demon is the person. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting, like, the implications underneath that, yeah, Mary is that clever, we've already seen that, and now... She also has an alpine chaff, like which is a corvid, which is also clever. So just like one of those interesting little things. Do they live in the mountains? Because they're called yeah, alpine? they live in the Alps. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, she talks about like I'm a mountain climber, and like I had a oh yeah yeah. Another thing that I really do like about Mary's uh, scene with her demon here at the end, um, and I don't necessarily believe that Philip Pullman meant it this way. It's just how I personally choose to interpret it. Um, because Mary's one of the few people that, especially adults that we've seen who is really perfectly at ease with herself and doesn't really question herself that much or or like, she doesn't really seem to have any self-loathing or self-doubt. And as soon as she sees him, she just like reaches out his hand and like, come here. And she's just really excited. Mm. I mean, which is like so completely opposite to Mrs. Coulter and the golden monkey who, who are very seldom like having a good time together, you know? I, I don't necessarily know that he meant it that way or if he was just like, she's curious about him. But I like the idea that she's just immediately welcoming and excited about this part of herself for like the one adult that we have who is very good with herself. Yeah. And I also think that like in terms of like fan service and kind of like a fun way, like giving the chance of just Kind of, you know, like a somewhat normal person from our world to be able to, through effort, choose to see their demon is like kind of cool because it's it's like a, I think a little bit. I mean, obviously, like in the fandom space, there's like a lot of uh, a lot of people like really enjoy assigning people demons and like thinking about like, well, what would your demon be? And so I think it's like easier to kind of like self-insert yourself into that like mary's experience experience of discovering her demon versus like lyra and will's experience of having a demon (laughs) right so it's very hard to do that one yeah (laughs) Yeah. i think it's it's kind of cool to to like provide that experience to the reader of just like another perspective on what it might be like to discover what your demon is and like have that relationship and develop that relationship with your demon. So just cause we're talking about Mary's demon here, we may as well talk about pan pan's um, final form. 
and Kiryava, what she settled as also, and how and why they settled, I suppose. And I just want to say, as somebody who did a grade eight science project on the Pine Martin, I felt so <laughs> fucking vindicated two years later. <laughs> nice. Oh, wow. What's a Pine Martin? <laughs> I remember nothing about that project, though, so please don't ask me to be an expert on Pine Martins, but they are extremely adorable. And that's that's all. I, I love that for Pan, that he ended up being adorable. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's not exactly the ermine, ermine, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, Again, a a word I've only read. It's like similar to that form that I think we're really familiar to seeing him as, but a little bit different. So it's like comfortable, but not super predictable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Will Wright has this, he's, I mean, he's had a whole cat thing since book two. So it makes sense that. His yeah, I'm glad cat. he got a cat. Now he has a forever, not a pet, but like he has a cat forever now. Yeah. If he ever needs to murder someone, he can just have them trip over the cat. So <laughs> set for life. But it would really, <laughs> this time it would be him murdering them because yeah, it's, totally. it's literally him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I also I also just like the idea of his his nature being a bit of a cat, you know, kind of standoffish and has to be won over before he'll show you any like i just think that's that's perfect for him and i guess the name cure how do we say Kiryava. this Kiryava is like a real word in a different language i think it's like finnish or something i looked this up i'm not totally remembering it um but it, it means like iridescent or multicolored or like finnish it's finnish yeah sounds yes um yeah, meaning colorful. Yeah, so I think that's cool because, you know, like as much as Will is like doesn't stand out and everything, he's he's a very like complicated, multi layered young man, right? He's there's like a lot there, even though you don't necessarily notice him. And there is something kind of feline about that where it's like, oh, I didn't even see that cat. So it just feels appropriate, like you said. I have religion, is it? The final religion section for books. Um, Thank God. Yep. Sorry. (laughs) Dickhead. (laughs) Uh, We get some information about the abyss and the the specters that they are from a world of kind of nothing, I guess, of of all the possible worlds. I guess they are the possibility of no world, it seems like. And they come from that world. They call them the children of the abyss. I don't know if it's said that they live in the abyss or if they're like little bits of the abyss broken off. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of kind of like how dust is or is related to consciousness. They are kind of bits of nothing or related to the anti-dust. Right. If you were raised in the church and you have a lot of apocalyptic stuff thrown in your face, you'll know that the main thing about the abyss when in the uh, Revelation of John or the book of Revelations is when the the abyss opens initially this is like when it gets really serious about the end of the world so there's an angel it unlocks the abyss and when it does all of these evil spirits that were in there pour out and they start to attack all of reality and and destroy things and they're kind of the source of destruction and then there's nothing left there but a void which later uh, satan is thrown in there and i've talked about that on previous podcasts. So initially all of these things pour out and it seems like a direct connection to me 
to the to the specters and their destructive uh everything they're doing to the universe and dust specifically which is a cool connection i think and would be like pretty obvious uh if you were forced to go to catholic school and learn that stuff you'd be like oh yeah i get it i was i was not so (laughs) this might be a good time for me to ask a question i had which is so do you think that philip pullman knew that the specters were created from using the knife when he first wrote them in book two. Yes, because there's more of them in Chitagatze. Yeah. I don't think he necessarily had all of that world building and stuff planned out for the Golden Compass, but I feel like by the time he wrote The Subtle Knife, he knew the main points of where he was going for how he was going to wrap up the amber spyglass. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about how one of the first things he thought of for the whole series was the world of the dead stuff. And mm. so that implies that maybe he, he the abyss was part of that and therefore the specters and everything. So I don't know. I enjoy stories more when I think the author has planned them out better than perhaps they have. So I just like <laughs> to think that he had all that worked out. I felt I felt the opposite that this was like it was like Luke, I am your father. Like it was, it was like a he he realized like oh the specters are caused by the knife in the third book, and he was like it fits perfectly. Like that's that's how it felt to me. Well, so I feel like that's why I asked this question is because I personally looking at that was a little bit torn. Where I was like I don't know. Like did he? Is it kind of just like? a Luke, I am your father moment thrown in at the end, or did he know the whole time? (laughs) The fact that there's way more specters in Chittagatze makes me think that maybe he did know. And like Kate, I think I want to believe. Yeah, (laughs) I want to believe. Uh, Like maybe he didn't have the abyss thing worked out, but I do think he had the knife creating them worked out. And even maybe the dust floating away because it all just fits together so well. Yeah, I do think he knew none of this when he was writing The Golden Compass. Yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. Absolutely. He had no idea what he was doing there. <laughs> he was just clueless. Um, just fucking no, around, uh, really. I almost mean that literally, because almost from The Golden Compass to The Subtle Life, there's such a change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. The Golden Compass works so well as a standalone book. Yes. And then the shift to books two and three, like there is a shift there that feels really different. But I think books two and three feel more connected and interwoven and like similar in tone and approach. Like the Egyptians coming back at the end of book three is wild. Yeah. (laughs) Like where did they come from? What were they doing? What? (laughs) Like I'm fine with it because I like them and I like that they got to interact with the Mulofa. That's interesting. Uh... So the last thing that I have here is something that I've been talking about for a couple episodes before this, the process philosophy. We talked about the whole actor network idea of like, Mm -hmm. you know, things are people too and people are things too. What I see here, especially at the end of the book and how it has to do with the abyss and the specters is there's kind of an allegory going on about climate change which I think we've talked about before. It's not too 100%. hard to understand. Yeah. Uh, but it was interesting to me because I don't think that this is something that Pullman is probably aware of. But what was interesting about that is just how nicely it fits um, 
with this guy, uh, Bruno Latour, who's a French philosopher, or I should say was a French philosopher. He just recently passed in October of 2022. Um, so very recently. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a philosopher of science and kind of like treated science as an anthropological subject. And so when we think about science, usually I think in the West, we think of that as like an endeavor to kind of explore reality or find truth but he looked at it as like its own kind of social practice and like studied it like you would a religion or just any group of people who are interested in doing a particular thing and didn't treat it with the same kind of uh like he he pissed off a lot of scientists is what i'm trying to say like a lot of scientists (laughs) don't like him because he pointed out a lot of things that'd be like you guys are just in a club you know that right and they're like no we are (laughs) seeking the truths of the universe it's like you're not you're taking it a little too seriously Um, well again it's it's very much that sort of idea of this platonic ideal of truth yeah which isn't real like we've kind of moved on from the ideas of truth as this singular thing that you can just ratchet towards until you get to it, and then you've suddenly achieved truth, and your job is now pointless. No, that's not really ha- we we not in in so many ways do we not really have that idea. It's so strange that we still fundamentally hold on to that fundamental idea um, when talking about science, even though in science we don't use it that much. He thought it was weird. weird too how like things that are, need to be accepted as truths in science have to be like done in a very specific setting of of the lab and have to be like repeatable by other people and have to be peer reviewed and verified and like all of that stuff is what leads to truth and he was like so things are not true unless we all agree on them seems like a really weird standard for truth when you say it that way and scientists are like no we're just verifying that it's true and he's like no you're saying that the conditions of truth require like a group effort and that things are not true until they're group efforted, you know? Um, and, and, that and there is pissed off. And there is complexity to this argument as well, because it's like, you can make, you can make the argument on both sides and both of them are fairly, um, salient and valid. Like, you can you can make the argument from there that you're not saying that to be true it has to have been validated you're just saying that it has to fulfill the requirements of being able to be validated mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. then the argument there is well you you can never measure the same things you can measure things that are analogous but like we were talking about with the quantum um communication in back right. in episode 3 like a lot of that is you trying to re-measure the same particle and you can't re-measure the same particle at the same time you can't right. you can't have multiple independent measurements of exactly the same thing you can have something which kind of correlates with them and so do you ever have a truth and then does it ever matter that you don't have a truth per se what is truth oh it's yeah. epistemology again <laughs> yeah. Da-da. but it's also there's there's a implicit thing going on here when we're talking about this of like the particle over here and the scientists over here and this is a division Mm. between the natural in the particle over here and the scientists who are the social thing over here and bruno latour Mm. is kind of pointing out to the scientists hey you're a social group but also hey you're deeply deeply connected to what's natural and you're not apart from it 
and what's natural is is deeply a part of the social thing and that these are so intertwined that to say that they are different or to try and purify them from each other creates more problems than it solves and like you're being married to this idea like you're saying is kind of like out of the platonic condition and and kind of the even the christian tradition and his like his wider point is that in a lot of ways science science is just modern christianity like it never really lost it just lost what it was talking about in god and just continued the same structure to talk about different things i really like that because so much of religion and philosophy in its early days was trying to figure out how and why the world worked exactly mm-hmm. and that's because god. what science is yeah yeah, yeah. or gods depending on where mm. you came from <laughs> you know like it's not just christianity you know, like that's what they were like what the hell is that lightning yeah i guess zeus is angry you know like right describing I, meaning yeah yeah so it's interesting how we've always been trying to figure shit out we've just gotten different at it mm-hmm. yeah and that's his whole point is that science is not necessarily this special new thing that we always tell ourselves it is and and in telling ourselves that we're promoting this certain kind of fiction that ends up causing ourselves trouble when we are doing things on like the industrial global scale as it relates to climate change and so how this relates back to the story is the idea of the subtle knife and the alethiometer are kind of like Bruno Latour's idea of these objects that he calls hybrids. And so a hybrid is that there is this kind of uh, element of what we might consider the natural world and the social world being together uh, in the hybrid. There's there's no way that it can exist without these purified kind of false concepts according to Latour of the natural and the social. So like one of the ways that I think about this, and I don't know why, because I I don't even like car racing or anything, is the idea of like, if I had a race car and drove it around, as opposed to me driving around my regular car, or if a race driver drove around my car, or drove around the race car, those would be like, it, it wouldn't be four separate objects in a network. It would really be two different things. Like me in a race car, I would drive differently than if I was in my regular car just because of its capabilities. But the race car driver in the race car is going to drive even differently than me. And so the point is that like, but if the car is just by itself, it's not going to go anywhere. It needs a driver. So there's an element here of like, you have to be a part of the machine, but the machine is a part of you. The machine is changing you, but you're changing the machine. You're an actor together. You're a hybrid. You exist together. It's not that there's this machine thing over here and there's this social thing over here, this natural thing. The That's not how it works. And you can see this, I think, much more clearly than my bad car example in the knife, the way that Will uses the knife, the way that Lyra uses the alethiometer. These are objects that don't do anything on their own, but when Lyra and Will interact with them in a particular way, they give off an effect that they were built for. So the alethiometer is built to convey truth. This is kind of like a purified idea 
in Latour's, the way that he has constructed his process philosophy. Like we're always, you know, in the, in the example of the car, you're trying to use that for transportation and you, you know, the car is a means of transportation for humans. And so that's like a purified social concept that we built a machine to do. The alethiometer is a machine that produces truth. But because it's a hybrid, there's all kinds of hidden things that we have because of the story that we're telling ourselves. Oh, this is just like a social thing. So there's the consequences are social. Well, the consequences are like very natural. So my use of the car to go from one place to another to engage in pure travel has the side effect of like carbon emissions or like, you know, polluting things with like rubber from the tires or cast off from the car or whatever. The alethiometer has like a lot of ambiguity around it. Like who is answering? This answer is very confusing. Did I ask the question in the right way? Because the symbols are so confusing. The subtle knife, of course, has the same kind of thing. It's it's a pure travel thing. You're trying to get from one universe to another, but the side effects of that create specters. They sap dust from the universe. There's all these unintended consequences because our focus is not on how the system works or acknowledging that the system, like there's even a systemic element to it at all. All we're acknowledging is like, the end goal or the teleology of the object. We're just saying this object is for traveling and that's all it does, but that's not all it does. It does all these other things at the same time and they can't just be accounted for in a new design. Any design that we come up with is going to have unintended consequences to it because that's how hybrids work. That's what they do. It's only once we acknowledge that we systemically deeply live in the natural world and there's no distinction between social and natural that we would be able to live the way that the mulefa live in their society in like a kind of perfect more perfect harmony where their technology is like very very natural so by not acknowledging that we are natural creatures but that we and telling ourselves a fiction that we're purely social we create all of these problems like climate change and things like that, that arise out of the fiction itself. And I think that this is pretty explicit in the story because like the alethiometer and the subtle knife both come from the same time as the industrial revolution and Will's world slash our world, right? Yeah. So Pullman is like saying something about industrialization, the West, the way that we think about the world and the way that we interact with it, climate change, all the same stuff that Latour is saying in a way that like, I was like, whoa, this fits so nicely with process philosophy. I'm sure Philip Pullman mm-hmm. knows nothing about that because he seems like an interesting, <laughs> lovely, not boring person. <laughs> Ouch. Also <It> is... fair. <laughs> that is really interesting. I hadn't considered that there's like, yeah, two climate change metaphors in the book. Like there's obviously uh, the literal hole in the sky. Yeah. yeah, blasting open the world and like causing everything to melt. But yeah, that there's like this, the unintended consequences of building tools through a process of industrialization. 
or just building tools in general. It's just these tools which go beyond the can of normal people. Uh, yeah, Francis, talk about Socrates. Man, this is a fucking turn for the books where Alan's talking about process philosophy and I'm talking about Socrates. <laughs> but um, I think we call that football over here, don't we? <laughs> I learned I learned Socrates' name from Bill and Ted, so it was Socrates for so long. For so long, I was like, "That's Socrates," and then I I I don't even remember. It might have been late high school. They were like Socrates, and I was like, "Who's that? What are you talking about?" (laughs) See, I actually just didn't put the two characters together. Yeah, yeah. until now. Like I learned about Socrates. I love. I learned about Socrates, and it wasn't until I rewatched Bill and Ted like years later that I was like. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Um, yes, anyway. So, Socrates. So, Lyra's ending when she's talking with Pan about what are they going to do next, kind of reflecting on the book at large. Initially, it comes across as a conversation, right? Because Lyra and Pan are talking and we're getting exposition through them talking, which is kind of like most conversations that happen in the book and in plays and things like that. Any conversation in a form of entertainment usually gives us something, even if that something is not necessarily directly obvious. But this is an internal conversation. So because Lyra and Pan are the same being, in essence. So in a way, you you are taking what would usually be literarily a soliloquy as you have one character providing exposition to the observers um, just out loud, giving us their internal thoughts, instead is uh, presented as a discussion between the two characters. But those two characters are in fact one character. So it's sort of taking what usually would be a soliloquy, putting it instead as a dialogue where we find things out from them engaging in dialogue in a... I, you know, I would at least contend a sort of Socratic approach. It's not fully, but like they are by them talking, we are getting information, and then he's giving us that instead. But it's still performing the function of a soliloquy, but without all the kind of Shakespearean um, s- tragedy slash uh, cheese. I just thought it was a really interesting kind of literary device to put at the end of a book. And the more I looked at it, the more it was like, oh, damn, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the book has a relationship with Plato's Republic, which we talked about a lot and like the allegory of the cave. Uh, And it's, you know, and that whole thing is a Socratic dialogue. Like literally, it's it's like four people around a table and Socrates is there, which makes it Socratic. Um, But they (laughs) otherwise it's just it's just just a dialogue. dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) If it doesn't come from the Socrates region of <laughs> Socratia. <laughs> yeah. But but it is very when you when you wrote this down I was like, "Oh, wow, I never thought of thought of it that way, but I think there's something there that is uh it's funny when you read the Socratic dialogues cuz it'll be like a a long thing and then Socrates will ask a question and then the other person in the dialogue will be like, of course, Socrates. Yes, you're right, Socrates. Of course, that's how it is, Socrates. <laughs> is um, Socrates a Mary Sue? Oh, yeah, totally. He's like, <laughs> I feel like if Socrates ever had the... There's actually a book that does this 
where Socrates gets to read Plato's Republic and he's like, what a bunch of trash. This is garbage. <laughs> like, I would never say this stuff uh, by a book by Joe Walton. It's, it's a lot of fun uh, if you're into that stuff. But yeah, uh, she's definitely like having a very philosophical, you know, self-reflective. And this was Socrates' whole thing about uh, the the life worth living is the examined life, right? The life that you look at. This is very existential of her to think mm. about what is our future? How are we going to build things? Why are we here? What are we doing? And she's doing it with herself. This isn't Will like telling her, now Lyra, you need to listen to me because I'm a boy and you're a girl, you know, or the professor doing that or anything like that. This is like, she's doing this for herself and it's wonderful. I think that's interesting or an interesting like ph philosophical debate or not debate uh, point to bring up because Philip Pullman has said that the demon, the demons came from him just realizing that he needed Lyra to be able to talk to someone to make the story work. So interesting from a philosophy point of view and like a writing technical perspective and how the plot and the, the technicality of what a story needs influence each other. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, so finishing up, I guess, any other notes on things that we wanted to talk about? Like, how does the prophecy work, right? We've talked about this before. Like, where does it come from? We have no idea. Where does it go when we die? <laughs> yeah. So in the, in the late part of the story, we get a lot of exposition from Serafina and from Zephania talking about, Zephania specifically talks about the power of imagination to transport and how that's oh, like yeah. not just pretending like you will be able to connect, you know, across universes to each other if you practice how to do that. I disagree with that interpretation of what she says, but okay. Because she specifically says that angels can travel between worlds that way. Uh -huh. So I don't think it's like if they concentrate on each other, maybe they can check in on each other. She's saying that there's a different way to travel between worlds has to do with something like imagination and they leave it really vague. Yeah. Okay, but do we know, do we ever figure out how dead Roger and Lyra were connecting when she was asleep in the cave? I believe we came to the conclusion that it's not 100% that it was really happening. Because I think I was wrong about that at any rate. And usually I remember when I'm wrong. Because I feel like that is a little bit related to this idea of like the power of imagination to transport and like angels being able to move that way like anyway i yeah. think it's also related to john perry knows about the bomb in the world of the dead and also right. knows about what asriel's forces are doing vis-a-vis -vis the specters and stuff it's because he's a magic shaman R yeah but like how does that work and i see it's it's using that that capacity shamanism is tapping into that power right and so like most people don't have it but I guess he's been able to cultivate cultivate it through shamanism. Right. And Lyra was able to do it with Roger because teleology and she had to to make it work. So you could read that and be dissatisfied, you know, like like I was saying with her losing her ability and be like, this is all pretty hand wavy and pretty convenient for the plot. Like the oh, these things needed to happen and so they did. But I feel like the, you could understand this in a way where it, it does make sense in the universe because what we're getting here is like there's an implication that 
and, and this is related to like Azriel's intention craft also and how he was able to summon a child to be sacrificed right. on the mountain that what you like deeply desire seems to like have some kind of I don't know if it's interacting with dust or if there's some other element that we just don't know about but we do know that there is like deep suffering and a desire for escape in the world of the dead from all of those people who are there and Roger talks about how everybody believes that someone is going to come for them and liberate them like some specific like my mother will come my uncle whoever and they never come and for him it's Lyra and so I feel like if you if you think about that in like a larger kind of Jungian there's another fantasy series that I really like that does this exact thing like a a Jungian kind of uber unconscious uh, it's the fantasy series is called Berserk, where all of the people like want there to be a god, and so that kind of like massive amount of desire for there to be a god manifests a god. It like makes it happen. In the same way, like everybody in the world of the dead wanting to get out of the world of the dead makes this prophecy happen and facilitates it happening. And then once it happens, all that desire has been, it's gone. Because all those people evaporated when they left the world of the dead, her ability is gone. That's super interesting. And so, mm. like, I feel like the story facilitates that kind of reading, even though it's not like explicit. So I, I just uh, pulled up that conversation between the Lyra and Will and Zephania about the other way that angels have to move between the worlds, and it is a wild conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's the way you have, Lyra said. Is it possible for us to learn? Yes, you could learn to do it as Will's father did. Well, what? Uh, it uses the faculty of what you call imagination, but that does not mean making things up. It is a form of seeing. But so okay, that's well, whatever. That's what I'm saying here that like yeah. he knew the what was going on, even though he was in the world of the dead. Like, I feel like that's directly connected to what she's saying about traveling. Like, being able to communicate across worlds. But then, but then, okay. um, it takes long practice. Yes, you have to work. Did you think you could snap your fingers and have it as a gift? What is worth having is worth working for. But you have a friend who has already taken the first steps and who could help you. Question mark? Who that? Maybe is, Mary? Isn't that Mary? Yeah, I assume Mary it's with, Mary. With Mary's ability to put herself into that state where she can communicate with dust. She almost got sucked into the abyss and then she like mm. swam back to her body. Yeah. I feel like maybe like if we hadn't taken a year to read the book, we would put these things together better. <laughs> yeah. I think we're doing it very well. Well, we're just living in the moment of each set of chapters. Yeah. Without thinking about the context. The context of a full book. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't know. I feel like that's a very internet theory kind of hot take kind of there's not a lot of evidence there it's more of a feeling it kind of hangs together but i don't know i just thought it there's some coherence there i think it's more coherent than like it's an allegory it's just hand wavy when it comes to the plot like i think you can make it work if you i think there's enough there i actually kind of like that that sort of subtly all these things that we've been ragging on throughout the entire three books kind of come together to make sense. Yeah. 
I guess you're okay, Pullman. You'll do. You'll be fine. We forgive you. (laughs) So I feel like this kind of relates to the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which was I'm going to make us revisit teleology one last time. Because I feel like a lot of our... We still have the TV show. This is not going to be our last time. (laughs) But I feel like some of our ragging, right, was, was on this idea that, like, like Pullman is very explicitly engaging with the idea of teleology, but also some of it feels just, like, a little bit too convenient. Like, Lyra has this power because she needs it. Like, blah, 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 all of that. I don't know. I guess I don't have any super profound thoughts on it, but given that we talked about it so much, and this is kind of like our last book episode... I thought we should revisit it and see, like, do we do we think that Pullman is saying anything specific about teleology in the way that the series ends thematically and the way that he's talking about, uh, you know, like making thesis statements about religion and philosophy or or was it just like some scaffolding that he used to get to the end? I think it was scaffolding. <laughs> In the same way that, like, Paradise Lost was scaffolding. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he just picked and chose what he wanted, you know, to say some cool things. Uh, uh, in specifically about teleology, I do think that he had a desire to say something about certain things, like definitely Catholicism and growing up and that sort of thing. But the teleology, I think he was just like, hey, this is fun. I, yeah, he wasn't, like, trying to make a point about the idea of teleology or the role it plays in our lives and the way that he was trying to make a point about religion and what it means and the role it plays in our lives. Like, or maybe he just saw that it all kind of overlapped in the way that as we've discovered science, religion, and philosophy all kind of do. He does screw with the idea of the, like the fantasy kind of chosen one story too. in that. I mean, that's kind of how we first brought this up in the idea of like, you have a purpose in the world. And then at the end, that purpose like vanishes. And that is not usually a thing that happens in fantasy. You kind of like super become the thing that you were always like, it, there's a real triumphant moment in a lot of fantasy and a, an ascendance into the role and you fully embody it. And then the story ends there. And she, like, disengages with it in a brutal way, I feel like. Yeah. Well, and, okay, I somehow have stumbled onto an actual point about the book. Um, (laughs) I think that defined this this recording. We just keep stumbling into things. Which is that um, there's that really interesting section where I think Will actually rejects prophecy, right? Yeah. Like, he has the, the offer to hear about what his future could be like or what he should be doing, what his teleological purpose would be. And he specifically says, I don't want to know because I feel like it would not make me happy. Either it will be not what I want to do and I'll resent it, or it will be what I want to do, but then I'll always be second guessing myself. Did I only do this because I felt like I had to? Yes, And so it's better for me just to do what I want and not think about it. So it's kind of, uh, maybe his point is almost like teleology doesn't matter. Like, like just don't think about it. Because like, 
whether or not it exists or not, destiny exists or not, prophecy exists or not, like, thinking about it won't make you happy. You just have to do what you think is right for you and for everyone else and and just, like, don't fuss about it. That's an interesting connection to Lyra and her prophecy, too, because we learn in this book that she did hear it in the first book mm-hmm. and that oh, yeah. she had to put it out of her mind. She had to not think mm. about it in order to come to it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And there's something there about, like, the way that existentialism works. Sartre talks about this all the time with bad faith. You can't, like, pick your role in the world and then, like, embody that role because then you've stopped being who you are and now you're playing a role. You can't be like, well, I'm going to be a doctor and now you're playing the role of a doctor. You have to do doctoring because that's what you want to do and it's an authentic expression of yourself in exactly the way that Will is saying. Did you choose doctor on purpose? I was thinking about Will. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's Wait, why? Is, does Will, Will does become a doctor. Oh, that's so interesting. Which is spoilers. Like, which is definitely Spoilers like, for what? There's no the more lantern book. slides. Yes. <laughs> oh, I didn't... I didn't... I told you I didn't get a chance to read the, the lantern slides. I thought it was like a spoiler for the other books in the oh, series. Oh, I don't know. Well, no, they're fully is. in Lyra's world. Yeah. So oh. far. I have no idea. I did... I had no... Again, haven't read them. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the... If, if I did also just want to say that no one tells Lyra about her about her uh, no one tells Lyra about her parents, so she never gets to know that they sacrifice themselves for her. Maybe she'll work it out eventually. Maybe, but I actually hope she doesn't. Of course. On some level, I do kind of dislike that Miss Coulter, after being like a very career ambitious shitty mom kind of a woman does like ultimately make this big sacrifice for her child the fact that it's for the whole world not just her child makes me feel a little bit better about it mrs lyra mrs lyra jesus mrs coulter didn't (laughs) care about a single other person in the world though (laughs) yeah i know there is not one other person in that world she would have sacrificed herself for and that's why i do like it And I feel like it's very existential that it's like an expression of her, of who she truly is, that act is. And I felt like Asriel doing that was not an, it was an expression of his, like, I am a God killer. I am the most, most, you know. Thank you for journeying with us uh, through this discussion of the book. Uh, the Amber Spyglass. We will be back soon to talk about the TV show. If you like our podcast, please take some time to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember to close every window, lest you let all the dust out.
when uh, the queen died, I told Francis that we basically stole their national anthem and made it our own patriotic song, and I think I broke his brain a little bit. It's truly horrendous. <laughs> I remember when I learned y'all stole our song for your national anthem before our country was created. That was like <laughs> you, get, you get the fuck out. <laughs> evil. <laughs> right. Welcome to Meshes of Truth. Hit da- his I'm da- sitting here ready to begin. You guys are talking, okay? <laughs> Angie Caitlin. <laughs> How dare you make me laugh during the intro? <laughs> Sorry, that was uh, my writing. That was so long. It did not it need to be really that long. long. <laughs> yeah. It kind of did. It's really hard to actually like try and sum up that chapter 38. Okay, and but like, you need a lot to... happens in it. They go their separate way and discuss their futures. Done. Uh, well. <laughs> novella, novella, novella. I'm, yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, no, that third one was wrong. Uh, <laughs> fuck you. Or its copyright isn't has expired or whatever the term is. I forget, so uh, I'm sure it's out there. Public domain? Is that the... Yeah. Public domain. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I just completely lost my brain. Um, so, least favorite part. No, nope, still one nope. more. Oh, oh my god okay. okay so every single thing you liked gotcha. <laughs> yes this is literally well i did write the entire last chapter and then like the five things that happened in the last chapter that i really like it's probably like mrs coulter has somehow floated over to asriel and killed him and using his body for sustenance <laughs> she's like, just like slowly <laughs> gnawing on his yeah, left <laughs> to survive longer <laughs> Oh but my God. it doesn't matter. His spirit would be there because they're gonna. Their spirits yeah. are just gonna keep. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's just doing it to survive more. <laughs> well, I it's hope not. you're happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Actual cannibal Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> it would be then interesting we'll for us to continue this podcast talking about them, though. That would be fun. It would be fun. Yeah. And then, um, then we would as well. Yeah, then yeah. We, we wouldn't have to stop being friends. So that that would be <laughs> the true. thing. That's true. I wouldn't just leave the chat after. <laughs> That would be so fucking funny. <laughs> if I just ghosted you all. <laughs> I might have actually added your number by then. I, I would respect added, like... it. Like that time I went to go see the Serenity movie and it just had Lord of the Rings music in the background. That's amazing. Composing it yet. I mean, in the same way as um, I, the first time I watched District 9, <laughs> I didn't realize that it was meant to have subtitles, so I didn't have them turned on and I thought that it was just... The, you weren't meant to know what the aliens <laughs> were saying so and it was amazing it was oh one God, of the incredible. best films I've ever seen what about, that might be the best way to watch that movie it really is, it's also well, really hard to com- find one where you can't, where you can turn off those subtitles that's so funny oh, yeah, that's just a completely different movie um, just Simone to <laughs> I, when I said like I've been waiting 22 years I was like wait what year did this book come out and I looked it up <laughs> and it was October 10th 2000 Wow, almost exactly 22 years ago Wow. yeah and I think there's a lot to be said about no I have no idea where I was going with that sentence please pretend I didn't speak <laughs> <laughs> editor the, the only <laughs> oh Jesus that's definitely going in the outtakes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I basically just punched my mic out of nowhere. So. <laughs> Are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. <laughs> oh, no, I haven't looked at my phone. <laughs> Wait, we're not in the religious section yet. That's when I... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Oof. laughs> like, cats like are usually collie. perfectly happy to be left alone. Yeah. 
Except they're like, yeah, mom, yeah. I'm going to school. And then they wait by the the payphone and then they're like, yeah. I'm not coming to school. I mean, my kid's not coming to school. And then oh, this is a home. me yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah, that's a you yeah. thing. Sorry. I, uh, she's sick and has to read. Um. <laughs> I also watched movies and played video games. I hated class. Class was the worst. I think we, uh, as a teacher now, I, I still hate class. <laughs> but I possibly hate it more. There. <laughs> Not even um. a week, possibly. <laughs> I'm the audience surrogate who asks the dumb questions, no. so the audience feels good about it. <laughs> You're good. I've never liked tools of any kind, so. I don't believe in them. Yeah. Like, I literally don't believe they exist. Screwdrivers <laughs> are not real. Good. That makes a lot of sense for how poorly everything is constructed in my home. <laughs> <laughs> if only this could be fixed. Screws. If only there were a way. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> an injured hand the way that it is becomes a surgeon there's just no way that that would happen in england it's way too ableist the, the <laughs> way that well, I mean, you could works. you could probably become a gp sure but yeah i don't think it ever surgeon. says that he's a surgeon and remember to close every window lest you let out let fuck mm. <laughs> <laughs> there we are that's the bleeper 